All right. Well, I'm excited this morning to continue with you through the book of James, and I am super excited that we have coupled or piggybacked James on top of Ephesians. We just recently went through the book of Ephesians because in Ephesians is where we got our groundwork, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that our salvation is entirely based upon the work of Christ, not anything that we could earn or deserve. We saw that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places have been poured out upon us. And then we start in the book of James. Well, James then says, this is what it's going to look like. This is what that faith looks like. I'm going to pause real quick because as I look out, I see someone out here. We have a special birthday, Peggy. Happy birthday. It is a birthday girl in the house. If you recall... When we went through Ephesians, the title of that sermon series was To the Praise of His Glory, because it was all what God has done on our behalf. And this sermon series is living for His glory. See, all that God has done, now there's a response in us to live for His glory. So this morning we'll be studying James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of the message is Evidence of Genuine Faith. And let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the glorious truth that we are saved by your grace. That your grace that is poured out upon us works within us and through us for your name's sake. That there is evidence of your grace working in us. Father, we pray as we study your word this morning that you would illuminate the truth to us. That you would reveal yourself more to us. God, we pray you would do a mighty work through the going forth of your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully you have your Bibles this morning. If you do have your Bibles, stand with me, everybody. We're going to honor the public reading of God's word together. We are in James chapter 2. It is also printed on the left inside leaflet of your bulletin, James chapter 2. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works 
when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So reads God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Please be seated, church. It is great news that we have studied the book of Ephesians together. Because if we read this in isolation, we can get the truth of Scripture twisted. When we study God's word, you must study it in the totality of what Scripture says. And that will help us to understand what James is teaching here this morning. Starting off in verse 14, you'll see he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So here is the underlying question. What does genuine faith look like? I want you to think about that for a second. Does faith look like something in somebody? Or is it just what they say? You need to think about that question. What does genuine faith look like? Because there are a lot of people who say they believe in Jesus. There are a lot of people who say, yeah, you know, God, you know, the big man upstairs, I believe in him. But what does that look like? What does faith look like in the life of a believer? Here we see, if you have faith but do not have works, we see a rhetorical question, can that faith save you? Meaning, are we saved from the wrath of God? Church, you know that we are all sinners saved by grace. I am no different than you. All sinners saved by the grace of God. And before we get too deep this morning in James' teaching, it needs to be said and understood that James is not arguing for a works-based salvation. He is not saying that you can earn your salvation by doing enough good deeds. Church, that's impossible. And if it was possible, Christ would not have to have died for us. That is not what he's arguing this morning. We know that salvation is 100% a gift of God. It cannot be earned, and it cannot be deserved. You'll recall with me when we studied Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. What James here in our text this morning is confronting is that if faith only exists in our minds and it doesn't demonstrate itself through obedience to Christ, then it's not faith at all. Does that make sense? If faith is only something that I have an intellectual assent to, but there is no outpouring of that faith through me, then that faith, as we'll see, is dead. It's useless. That's what James is arguing this morning. So this is important for us to grasp in this text, that this morning we either have saving faith or we don't. Church, that's a life and death predicament. Either we have genuine saving faith or we don't. It's of the utmost important that we know that if we profess Christ as Lord and Savior, that there should be fruit of that faith. There should be evidence of that faith. James likes to call out the readers, and he wants to call us out to make sure that we are genuinely and faithfully in Christ. You'll remember from chapter 1, verse 22, James wrote, 
but be doers of the word and not hearers only. And he says, why? Because you're deceiving yourself. If you only hear it, but you don't do it, you are deceiving yourself. It is in this same mindset here that James addresses those who say they have faith, but don't demonstrate evidence of the faith that they profess. David Platt took all of that and he stated it simply and clearly. He said this. He said, faith in our hearts is evidence in the fruit of our lives. Faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit of our lives and what we do and how we act in the way we interact with one another, in the way we respond to Christ. That's the fruit of faith. So again, looking at verse 14 in James chapter 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I'm going to say a double negative here. James is not saying that we are not saved by faith. It's not what he's arguing. He is arguing that faith produces good works. That genuine faith will bring forward good works, will bring forward obedience. Just because someone professes Christ does not mean they profess, or excuse me, does not mean they possess genuine faith. Say that again. Just because someone professes faith in Christ does not mean they possess genuine faith. James here starts off with a rhetorical question. If someone says they have faith but does not have works, can that kind of faith save him? Well, obviously not. We see in Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I want you to think about it. Who would refer to Jesus as Lord, Lord? Think about it. Engage with me. Someone who at least thinks they have some type of faith in him. They hold on to some type of faith because they say, have we not done? They'll go on to say all these things in your name. They had in their mind some form of faith and they referred to him as Lord. But according to Jesus, the faith that they possessed was not going to get them into heaven. Why? Because genuine faith produces fruit. Genuine faith will have an outflowing of God's grace through us. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 19, Jesus said the following. He said, you will recognize them by their fruits. He said, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree, listen church, every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And listen to what he says. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Genuine faith can be seen in a person. There is a transformation in the life of the believer that all things have become new in their lives, that God has given them a new heart and new desires. And it's evidenced by what comes out of them. We see James gives an example of this in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 in our text this morning. He says this, he says, If a brother or a sister, 
speaking of a fellow believer. If they're poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I want you to think about this example he just said. He's arguing again, genuine faith is evidenced by good works, specifically love and mercy. You guys know I've said it many times. Before Christ, we were focused on only three people, and those three people were all the same, me, myself, and I. But after God regenerated us through his spirit, he gave us a love for him. He gave us a love for his name, for his glory, for the things that he desires. That's a transformation. Here, James is arguing, if the faith that we profess to have does not demonstrate itself in acts of love and mercy, James says that faith is dead. He'll go on to say it's useless. It's good for nothing. The example he gives here is of a fellow believer. They're in need of some warm clothing. They're in need of some food. And can you imagine going to them and saying, hey, I'll be praying for you. What good is that? I'll be praying for you. We think that's a very Christian answer. Aren't we supposed to pray? Yes. But if you have what it takes to take care of them, you're to give as well. True love and mercy would take the coat off your own back and close somebody else who's freezing. True love and mercy would take the food that you're about to eat because you're hungry and give it to somebody else who is hungry. That's love. That's mercy. But to say, go in peace, be warm and filled. Sad. So sad. It's neither merciful nor loving. The Apostle John put it this way in 1 John 3, 17. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Church, that's another rhetorical question. Obviously, it does not. God's love doesn't abide in that person. If they have something to be able to offer somebody in need and they do not give it, it's evident that God's love does not abide in them. If faith does not demonstrate itself in works of mercy and love, then the faith that is professed, James is declaring, is not a saving faith. To help illustrate this, Jesus taught a lot on this. We're going to walk through a teaching of Jesus. Uh, it'll be on the screen, but if you have your Bible, it's a lot of text. So open up to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Give you a second to go there. For those of you that mark up your Bibles, you don't have time to mark up some things here. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to start in verse 31, reading the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. He teaches, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
Again, this is Matthew chapter 25. We're in verse 33. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I'm going to stop there real quick. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to keep reading a little bit. Don't lose that page. But notice the sheep. These are the righteous. They're on his right hand. And what does he declare to them? He says, you are blessed by my father. And he says that they're going to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundations of the world. These are those who had genuine faith. Then Jesus goes on. And says to those with genuine faith, keep reading with me, verse 35. He says, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous turn to him, and they respond. Look what they say in verse 37 and 38. He says, then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? Verse 39. And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Church, pay attention to what Jesus is about to say. Verse 40, Jesus replies, and the king answered them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. These are those who have genuine faith that when they saw a brother or a sister that was in need, they went and they took care of their needs. It cost them something. They went and showed acts of mercy, acts of love. So Jesus first addresses those on his right, those with genuine faith. But then he turns and he addresses those on his left, those who are referred to as the goats, the unrighteous. Look with me at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. Stop there, church. Those are words you never want to hear from Jesus. Never want to hear from Jesus. He starts, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's pretty harsh. Pretty direct. You are not going to inherit what the other people are inheriting, the righteous. And here's why. Verse 42 and 43. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison. And you did not visit me. And then they're going to be puzzled at this and turn to him. And they're going to respond in verse 44. Then they'll answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And did not minister to you? Stop there, church. I want you to look at verse 44. Look at it and pick something up. These are those who are declared as the unrighteous. These are those who Jesus said, depart from me. But look how they addressed him. Maybe pick it up. Lord. Lord. They possessed some type of faith. 
But it was not a saving faith. It was not a genuine faith. Look at Jesus. He responds. He gives an answer and he gives his judgment. Verse 45 and verse 46. Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And look at verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Church, I love when we gather and we, we hug, we, we embrace, we encourage each other, we tell stories. But what is being taught this morning is so very important. Because there will be those who stand before Jesus thinking that they have some type of faith that will save them, and they will hear from him, depart from me, because truly they never knew him. Because their life was never marked by true repentance and fruit of repentance. Their life was marked by lawlessness and unrighteousness. So it's so important this morning that we perk up our ears and that we understand that genuine faith will always produce acts of love and mercy. Genuine faith will produce good works of love and mercy. There are many people who say, well, Pastor, I listen to tons of sermons. I listen to sermons all day long, all night, every day on my drive, on my computer, everywhere I'm listening to sermons. I even watch you know, people on TV preaching. I read lots of Christian books. I know a lot of the scripture. And they think because of that, that is the testimony and the witness of their genuine faith. Jesus didn't say anything about that right now. Jesus said evidence will come forth out of you from the work that's been done within you. That the grace that's been poured into us will flow out of us to others. That there will be evidence of that. Firstly, love. Christians are to be marked by love. You know, Jesus in chapter 13 of John, John chapter 13, he talks about a new commandment, which wasn't really a new commandment. He just qualified it. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, that was already a command to love one another. But he qualifies it. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Does anybody have any idea in the context what Jesus just got finished doing? He was washing the disciples' feet. Do you know who was amongst him as one of those disciples? Yeah, you're right. And Jesus didn't get to him and go, uh-uh, and keep going. He demonstrated love. He took on the lowliest form of servanthood and washed their feet. A demonstration of love. James continues in James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. You can flip back. If you flip to Matthew, you can flip back to James. James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. He goes on with his argument and says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. So show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he says, You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now we miss something, not having a Jewish background, so, well, all except one of us, without a Jewish background, some of us miss what it means that you believe that God is one. It is the Shema that faithful Jews would pray as they opened up Deuteronomy 6.4. They would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's okay. 
You believe that. That's great. He says even the demons believe that. How about this? Do you believe that Christ went and hung on a cross? Well, guess who else believes that? The demons believe that too. Do you believe that on the third day that Christ rose from the dead? Guess what? Even the demons believe that. James here is making an argument that just because you say you believe, that does not necessarily mean it is saving genuine faith. He's dividing it and saying, look, if you have genuine faith, it will be evidenced by what comes out of you. It will be seen. Look, church, and I've said it before. Some of you have heard it. If someone says to you after knowing you a long time, I would have never guessed that you were a Christian. That is not a compliment. You don't go, yeah, I hit it really well. It should be evidence in you. By the way you interact with people. By the way you say things. By the things you decide to engage in, it should be evidenced in you. So Paul says, or excuse me, James says, even the demons believe. So think about how many people say, well, I believe. I believe. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm good. Leave me alone. That belief should be evidenced by a transformed heart that desires to please and live in obedience to Christ. James then writes in verse 20, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I want you to look at that again. It's not very gentle. Do you want to be shown, what does he call You foolish person. That's right. He's speaking very harshly here. Someone who says they have faith, but doesn't demonstrate the fruit of it, does not want to test out that faith before God when judgment comes. Say it again. Someone who says they have faith, but there's no evidence of it in their lives, do not want to stand on the day of judgment and test it out before God. They don't want to find out on that day that it's too late, that their faith on that day is dead. It's been dead. It's been useless. They'll be shown that they were deceived. And instead of mercy, they'll get what was rightly due to them. Church, you all know the bad news, that we are all sinners, that we've all sinned against the holy God, and that naturally we are storing up the wrath of God for ourselves. That's the glorious news of Jesus Christ that he paid that penalty on our behalf. But if we have genuine faith, church, it's going to be evidenced in our lives. It's going to be a witness of God's grace in us. Church, James here is lovingly instructing us that we need to be sure that there's evidence of our faith. I want to stop there real quick because some people get this twisted and they say, all right, pastor, are you preaching that we're working our way into heaven? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Church, works are not evidence for salvation. Works are evidence of salvation. I'm not working hoping that I do enough that God will let me into heaven. But if I have genuine faith, that faith is going to come out of me as a testimony, a witness that God's grace was poured into me. You guys follow me. If we say we are in Christ, Christ should be evident in us. That's what... James is arguing. If the gospel hasn't changed you, you can be sure of something. 
the gospel hasn't saved you. The gospel hasn't changed you. The gospel has not saved you. James goes on and uses a couple examples to demonstrate evidence of salvation. In verse 21 of James chapter 2, so speak of Abraham. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He says, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, you guys didn't hear it, but I just heard like a record scratch. Okay, that was like a re- what? What did he just write? Anybody know the best commentary on the Bible? Good job, Chris. The Bible. The Bible is the best commentary for the Bible. So when we read something, we need to read it in context of the totality of Scripture. So when we read something like verse 24 there, it's a cause to go, wait a minute. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what the totality of Scripture is saying. So then why does James write it this way? Well, first let's look at this word justified. Justified in Greek is dikaio is the word. It has two definitions in Scripture. The one that we're most commonly used to for justification means an acquittal, declaring a person righteous. That's what we think about justification. That it's like just if I'd never sinned. I could stand before God just if I'd never sinned. Justified. But there's also another definition for the same word. It is also defined in Scripture as vindication or proof of righteousness. Can I see that? Proof of righteousness. So which do you think that James is arguing? Do, he, do you think he's saying you have to earn your salvation by what you do? Absolutely not. He's saying the proof of your salvation comes out by what you do. There's evidence of it. There's fruit of your faith. We see it in verse 21 and verse 24, the justified. Proof, evidence. He's arguing that Abraham's works resulted in him being declared, excuse me, he's not arguing that Abraham's works resulted in him being declared righteous. Rather, his works proved that he was righteous. Some of you know your Old Testament, and if you go back, Genesis chapter 15, we know that Abraham that his actions were taking his son Isaac to offer him up, that Abraham was declared righteous way before that ever happened. Many, many years before that, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we read, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He did what? He believed the Lord. First, Abraham believed, and because he believed, it was counted to him as righteousness. When he went and obeyed God and took his son Isaac, that was just proof. It was evidence that he believed and he trusted God. It was fruit of his faith. As in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Scripture is clear that we are not declared righteous or justified by our works, but we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans 3.28, he says very clearly, the Apostle Paul, For we hold that one is justified by faith 
apart from the works of the law. Seems like that contradicts verse 24 completely. James 2.24 seems to say just the other way. This justification is how we stand before God, justified that our sin has been taken by Christ, the penalty of our sin, that we could stand righteous before God. James is arguing the right that our uh, justification is the proof, the evidence of our faith. I like how Charles Spurgeon tied these two things together. Charles Spurgeon said this, and if you read your bulletin, it was in there as well. He said, faith and works are bound up in the same bundle. He that obeys God, trusts God. And he that trusts God, obeys God. He that is without faith, is without works. And he that is without works, is without faith. Yeah, see how they're, they're, they're tied together. If I truly trust God, I do what he says. I follow him, I obey him. My works are evidence of that. So James uses Abraham as an example of that. James says, look, he was declared righteous. But then his works, his obedience, was that proof, that evidence that he truly was. But then James goes on and he uses another example. Somebody quite different than Abraham. In verse 25, James chapter 2, you'll see in verse 25 he says, In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? How many of you remember the story about Rahab? It's found in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua sends, sends spies into Jericho to go spy out the land. And they end up at the house of this lady Rahab. Well, it just so happens that Rahab had a history of a certain, um, let's say, uh, what do we want to call it? Profession? She was a prostitute. Not the background that you would think of somebody who would faithfully follow God. But what she does demonstrates that she had faith in the God of Israel. Rahab takes the spies as the guards come to look for them, and she hides them, and she makes a cover for them, and sends the guards away. No one would ever look to Rahab and say, oh, she was a person of faith. Look at her background. Church, I want you to look at the examples James gave, and I think he gives them for a reason. He uses Abraham. Everybody goes, Abraham, you know, Father Abraham, and we sing songs in Sunday school and everything else. But no one's singing songs around Rahab. It's amazing to think about Rahab. She was part of Jesus' lineage, being the great-grandmother of David, Rahab. And it brings great hope that James uses both Abraham and Rahab as examples of genuine faith. And here's why, church. It doesn't matter who you used to be or what you used to do. We all have a hope in God like no other. That no matter how righteous I thought I lived before, or how awful I thought I lived before, that I can be saved by the grace of God. Whether it's Abraham responding righteously, or it's a prostitute who turns and shows dem demonstrates true belief in God. It doesn't matter what the background is. There's great hope in Christ. James ends his argument, church, in verse 26. He says in James chapter 2, verse 26, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's not the first time he said it. He said it multiple times. That if there are no works that are evident, that faith that is professed is dead, it is useless, 
it will not help on the day of judgment. That we will stand there before Jesus and we'll say, Lord, and we would hear, depart from him, never knew. Church, that is not the faith that we want to profess. That is not the faith that we want to possess either. We want genuine faith. We want faith that produces fruit. Faith that from within us, Christ flows out of us. Jesus spoke of this. He put it this way in John chapter 15, starting in verse 5. Jesus says, look, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Keep reading with me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. But he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Okay, see the last part? Here is the evidence that you would bear much fruit and prove. It would be that testimony that you are Christ. How do we bear fruit? By following Christ, by obeying his word, by abiding in him. Because apart from him, we could do nothing. It's not like it used to be before Christ where we just thought, man, I got to get better and I got to stop doing this or I got to stop doing that and I just got to get better. And we find out that we keep falling down, keep struggling. Instead, it's repentance. It's turning from our way and trying it and turning to God's way. God, I just want to follow you. Be obedient to your word. You know, James isn't the only one that gives warnings in Scripture. God has sent warnings from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Prophets of old would come and give warnings to repent. And those messages oftentimes weren't received well. You know how those prophets were received? With stones. <laughs> we don't like the message. Kill the messenger. But it's funny because we have a disciple named John, also known as the disciple of love. He didn't start off that way. He was a son of thunder. But he was completely transformed by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And John lovingly gives a warning much like James. In 1 John chapter 3, John writes this. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Didn't we hear James say something like that? James says the same kind of thing, let no one deceive you. He says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Look at verse 9. If you have your Bible open, highlight it, circle it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Stop, time out. Let me take a little side note. Brother and sister in Christ, you will sin until you see him face to face in a glorified state. You will fall into sin. What John says is the practice of sinning, habitual sin, where you say, "Well, it's no big deal. You know, I'm covered by grace. I'm okay. I believe." and you continue in the same sin. 
what should happen when we fall into sin, there should be conviction of the Holy Spirit. And there's the promise that if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That's the same author, by the way. John penned that in 1 John chapter 1. He says in chapter 2, he says, I write these things that you may not sin, but if you do, know that you have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who's with the Father. So church, I want you to be clear here. One, that you don't become trying to seek after self-righteousness, that your life has to be perfect before Christ. Your striving is to be obedient to him, but there will be times that you fall. There will be times that you stumble. But your life should not be marked by sin. You shouldn't be known as the whatever that sin is to people. Oh, there's the thief, or there's the liar, or there's the whatever. That shouldn't be the mark of the Christian. That would be a practice of it. He says, no, you cannot continue if God's seed is in you. Verse 10, he continues, says, By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's pretty direct. Doesn't need much interpretation. He's saying, look, if God's seed is in you, if his Holy Spirit dwells in you, if you are the temple of the living God, there should be evidence of it in your life. There should be fruit of faith. Paul, writing in Titus, summarized it, said it really brief. He says in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, he says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit, any good work. You notice what he says. There are those who will profess to know him. But what is it that denies him? What they do. There's no evidence of it in their lives. Whew, another light message, church, right? So what do we do with something like this? Some of us might look upon our lives and look back and know who we were before Christ, and right now you praise Jesus for the work that he's done in your life. That you know who you were before, and you know who you are now, and you know it's only because of the grace of God. And you give him all honor and glory. That I'm not doing what I was doing before and seeking after the pursuits I had before, but God has given me new pursuits and new desires. For some of us this morning, we might think, wait a minute, there's been a whole lot of people that we've looked at today that thought that they had a faith. And yet it was declared they did not have it. Even Jesus himself saying, depart from me. And that should cause us to stop and to ponder and to consider. The Apostle Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the beginning of verse 5. He says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. He says, test yourself. If this morning, church, you're looking at yourself and you're looking at the scripture as a mirror and you're going, the faith that I have does not match the faith that James is arguing. That it is quite possible that the people that know me best don't even know that I'm a Christian. There's no evidence. Or if they do know I'm a Christian, it's only because of the things that I've said, not by anything that I've done. And the witness I'm leaving for them is that all you got to do is say you believe in Jesus and live life contrary to him and you'll be okay. That's not the witness that the believers believe. Question for you this morning. Is there evidence of genuine faith in your life? Is there evidence of genuine faith in your life? Are you, church, producing fruit of faith from your obedience to Christ? Are you producing fruit? 
you know, we can get deceived in fruit. There are things that we can do that make us feel better. Hey, if I go help that person, boy, I feel better about it, and I'm such a good person, and I did my good deed for the day. That's not what we're speaking of. We're talking about an obedience to Christ. We're talking about desiring to please Him. Because James says, look, faith apart from works is dead. It's not genuine. We talked about the Apostle John. John, in his Gospel, John chapter 3, verse 36, you've become familiar with this. John said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Simple enough. That's what most people go with. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Church, I have a question for you. What kind of faith did the person have who believed in him but was not obedient to him? Is that a saving faith? No, John puts it real clearly. But the wrath of God remains on him. Church, my heart's plea for you is that that would be none of us. That we get to stand before God and we get to esteem Him and what He's done through Christ and we get to be welcomed in. That there would be welcome in my good and faithful servant. That none of us would end up on that day of judgment and hear, depart from me. And we'd be like, Lord, what are you talking about? Lord, I called you Lord. I called you Lord. I've told people about you even but that we would hear, welcome in. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you're familiar with the book, Cost of Discipleship? Phenomenal book, by the way. Cost of Discipleship. He put all this together talking about obedience. He said this, he said, only he who believes is obedient. And only he who is obedient believes. For faith is only real when there is obedience. Never without it. And faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. So here's how it works. If we have genuine faith, it means that we have repented. It means we've turned from our way and our sin and we've turned to God. And we've fully trusted in what Christ has done on the cross for us. That he paid the full penalty of our sin. That I don't have to try to earn God's favor that I don't have to be worried anymore. Did I do enough good in my life to be accepted? But what I did is I turned from me and I turned to God and I trusted in Christ. And when I do that, I am declared righteous. The Bible says that He fills me with His very Spirit, that I am now in Christ, being forgiven of all my sins, past, present, and future. That is glorious news. But that gospel, that Christ died on my behalf, if I receive it and fully believe it and turn from myself to God, church, that's going to be evidence in our life. God's promises are real. He says he'll give you a new heart and new desires. That instead of being concerned only about me, myself, and I, that you're concerned about Jesus Christ, about following him, about exalting him, about bringing him honor and glory. That's fruit of faith. That he died in my place. And he has purchased me, ransomed me. Think about this. Many of you were here when we went through Ephesians, and I refer to Ephesians chapter 2 an awful lot because it shows us the bad news before the good news. And Ephesians chapter 2 starts off by saying that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You see, there are many people who think that, you know, we were like in the ocean and bobbing around and we're looking for a life raft to be thrown to us. And we're like, yay, Jesus, throw me a life raft. I want to cling to it and hold on. That is not the image Scripture paints at all. 
Scripture paints the image that we were at the bottom of the ocean, dead, done. And that God, out of his amazing love and mercy, reached down to the depths of the ocean, brought us up, and breathed life into us. That's the good news. It was all what he has done on our behalf. And then he filled us with his very spirit and made us light. Though we were darkness, we're now light. And he says, go and shine as lights. That others would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, once again, such a heavy portion of text. And God, I know you have written it out of love and compassion, out of mercy and grace. God, that you desire that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. That, Father, even within this church, there might be those who possess a faith that is no faith at all. That they have Bible knowledge, that perhaps they've listened to a ton of sermons. But, Father, they have never repented and turned to you and placed their entire trust in Christ. Father, I pray this morning in this place that today would be the day of repentance. That today the blinders would come off the eyes of individuals. That they would see, if I was to stand before Christ today, there's a concern that he might say, depart from me. God, I thank you for your glorious news that today that person can turn to you. Put genuine faith in you. And Lord, they can rest in you. That God, today you would fill them with your spirit, that you would give them a new heart, new desires, that they would desire to obey you, to abide in Jesus. That God, you would be glorified in their lives. God, for those of us in this place, that you have done that in us already. We hear our message like today, and God, we praise you together. We thank you that we are not who we used to be. We thank you that we do not have to live in fear anymore of what might happen if we die. But we have a glorious hope that we can stand justified before you and be welcomed in. God, thank you for the evidence, the fruit that you have poured in our lives and through our lives as evidence of faith. May you receive all the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.